Today, I have the utter joy of chatting to like-minded tech disruptor Aaron Gelbard, co-founder of Bloom and Wild. Aaron's journey reminds me a little of my own, starting a tech-based business with no real experience in that area, but always having a strong conviction that the idea was a good one and that the use of clever technology could turn an entire industry on its head. I loved Aaron's absolute honesty about the beginning of his startup, where all the mistakes are made. They seem to cost the earth, possibly even making you doubt you will ever succeed. And now he's grown a business that's able to challenge the way an industry thinks about their customers, thoughtfulness and sustainability. This is a true tale of an entrepreneur whose only wish was to build a business that makes people happy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Aaron. It is such a pleasure to meet you. I'm a big fan of your business. I've actually just finished purchasing your six-month subscription for my sister-in-law in Ireland, and she received her first bunch, and it was absolutely beautiful. So yeah, I'm so looking forward to hearing your story today. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, no cold, no C word. <laughs> I was just saying to Aaron that I'm actually a little bunged up, but it isn't the C word. So yes, it's just a December cold, isn't it? And uh, we're working all hard at the moment. And it's so inevitable that we get caught at this end of the year, isn't it? We're quite fatigued. I can imagine you're pretty fatigued. Or has this actually time not affected you as much as other people? Professionally, we've been fortunate, uh, like many e-commerce companies, to be able to continue trading. And we've seen, in some ways, customers uh, shifting to online more um, as they've been less inclined to go out to stores or they've been less inclined to visit loved ones and therefore more inclined to send gifts online. So from that perspective, we've been fortunate. It's been busy in a different way because we've had to adjust to working from home, readjust our supply chain to work in a fully COVID secure fashion. So um, Mm -hmm. there have been sort of things to figure out, but we've been very lucky. We've also really tried to think about some of the good fortune we've had and how we do business in a in a really responsible way as a result. So we partnered with the National Emergencies Trust as part of our COVID response and helped them raise the six-figure sum through a donation scheme based on profits on uh, some of our BKs. And then similar charitable organizations in the other countries where we operate, we extended our staff discount to all frontline workers and gave out over two million pounds of discounts as a result. So we were very aware that many people were, through no fault of their own, dealt a really raw hand this year, both personally and business-wise. And um, we were lucky to be spared that. So I guess thought about how we could 
use our position responsibly. And then personally, um, we had our second little girl in February, so just before the world went crazy. Wow. So it's been uh, hectic on that front, <laughs> but um, we'd have probably been in self-imposed lockdown in the spring if it wasn't for yes. uh, a national lockdown. You've got this bubble going on, I can imagine, exactly. where you're trying to work from home with a newborn. So that must have brought its own challenges as well. And a noisy toddler, yeah. As everyone listening, having to do this juggle, it is real. But listen, I want to start from the beginning because this is about your story and I know that you were born in France and you moved to the UK when you were five. And I read when researching for this podcast that you were very young when you realised that you had a very strong motivation to please other people. Where do you think that this came from? Or was this just always part of who you were? I think I've been a people pleaser from a young age. I think there are a couple of things. I think uh, my parents, especially my mum, are people pleasers. My Granddad was also an entrepreneur. My mum's dad, he started a chocolate company. So it's not the same business that I've started, but I guess there's this uh, desire to create a great product that uh, people really love. And then when I was five, uh, I moved uh, to the UK just with my mum. And, you know, I, I guess we spent a lot of time, both of us, just trying to get used to a new country and fit in. Mm-hmm. And, I didn't realize that this was my strategy at the time um, because I was five, but my strategy was to try and uh, just get people to like me and be nice to people and get this sort of validation. And it's really stuck with me since then. And um, my letter to myself that I'll share later is all about that. Were you like that at school? Did that work in your grades as well? You know, were you always striving to be liked by the teachers and getting good grades? Yes, I was striving to be liked by everybody, including teachers, and uh, trying to get good grades. I was um, slightly <laughs> geeky, uh, hardworking little boy, so my grades were normally good. Um, <laughs> I was better at some subjects than others. Um, I was probably better at like maths and uh, languages and sort of precise things like that and things like English and history where there wasn't sort of one right answer uh, I, I found more challenging um, being an only child um, and having uh, relatively strict parents uh, lots of time got made for homework uh, after school. <laughs> Something I'm hoping my son is listening to right this second, who's trying to convince me, you don't need to revise for mocks. What are you talking about? You know, this is not when you were in school, mum. You know, you don't revise for your mocks. And I said, I'm sure things haven't changed, Harry, that much that you don't revise for your mocks. So I'm going to make sure that he listens to this podcast. But you were drawn, as you said, to languages and you attended Oxford University where you read French and German. In your degree, though, you were offered the opportunity to work abroad for a year and you found yourself in Paris working for a tech company. It was opposed, wasn't it, really, to the degree that you were doing, but it feels like it might have ignited your love of tech. Yeah, it was a really good combo. It was amazing to get the chance to go to Oxford and to do a degree where I learned other languages. I really enjoyed that sort of internationalism and learning about other cultures and getting to read books in other languages and learn about them that way and just sort of the confidence that comes with uh, not fluency but getting close to fluent into other languages. Mm. I think education in Britain is largely unpragmatic you know in, in many other countries like France for example you have to do a year worth of internships as part of most degrees. Right. It's just a, a part of the culture that uh, students 
work and get professional experience as part of their studies. And I guess the standard... Pretty smart idea. I think so. And, you know, and we don't have that in Britain. You sort of, university can be like a three-year extension of school in many cases. Mm -hmm. So the ability to go to a great university, but then to also have the chance to go and work for a year and to do so in a different country and learn to navigate living overseas by yourselves and live really independently. University, Mm -hmm. you're you're sort of more independent, but so much stuff still gets done for you. You can still go to get your meals in a catered student halls and, um, you know, like you pay one bill and then somebody takes care of all of your (laughs) utilities and stuff like that, you know. And then um, this was really my first time living independently in a a little um, studio and, um, and just figuring out you know, life and doing it in a different country, I think was a really good experience. And then getting to work um, in technology, I worked in e-procurement. So it wasn't the most uh, glamorous as part of a team that was trying to set up a system for business uh, sourcing to happen automatically. So if you imagine that you run out of supplies for your business, um, now this would be really obvious. And, you know, now there's sort of Amazon and you can auto replenish your paper clips and whatever else. But at the time, things were much less technological and businesses were going into like local stores or retailers to buy both, you know, the the paper clips of the world, but also um, spare parts for factories and things like that. And there was no um, sort of centralized system for buying um, supplies and products um, on pre-agreed terms from pre-agreed suppliers in an automated fashion. And we were trying to um, set up a system which was relatively complex. And I, I was a, a cog in the wheel, but it made me understand more about business and technology and how the two interrelate. And I thought that was something that stuck with me going forward. I suppose in your story, you returned to the UK from Paris with this experience and you realised that you wanted to build a business based in tech. Your father was an entrepreneur. So you sort of knew that starting your own business wouldn't necessarily be plain sailing. You know, so you almost had that knowledge already. So how did this idea then start blending the world of tech and flowers come to fruition? Because you didn't have previous experience of the flower industry. Now you'd had this internship, I suppose, you know, in tech, but you took the courage to blend these two worlds. Tell me about this. So I worked for a few years in between and got some professional experience as a consultant. And I worked with various clients, mainly retailers, consumer products companies and tech companies. I got to go um, and spend nearly a year working in Silicon Valley as part of uh, my time as a consultant. So that was my second real immersion into the tech industry. And I I learned more about, um, it was the early days of Uber. I remember at the time um, you had to, text a number and then a mini cab would show up and this was really useful in San Francisco because there aren't enough taxis and there isn't really any public transport so it was uh, helpful for getting places and it was inexpensive and stuff like that and um, you know obviously it was very there was no app or anything so it's very different to now but um, this was another a real input for me and then I came back to London and and I I felt that it was the right time to try something I guess uh, in the footsteps of my dad, who's still an entrepreneur, my granddads, who both were, and it felt like the right time in life to take a risk as well. I wasn't, um, I wasn't engaged yet or, or married or have children or anything like that. So it felt like the right time from that perspective. And then in, in terms of what brought me to the flower industry, I guess I'll link it back to the earlier comment about pleasing people. I care a huge amount about 
the sort of customer feedback that I get. I would really struggle to set up a business that uh, sold a product that people didn't feel passionate about. That made me feel that uh, getting into a business like the flower business, which is basically a business for the expression of emotion, and so people do care deeply about the experience you give them, felt like a really good natural fit for me. When you think about it, there just wasn't a go-to brand for flowers. This wasn't in existence when you founded your business. Tell me about that. Was this just, it just came to you, the idea, flowers through the letterbox, or did other people inspire you? On the what's people's favourite flower brand, I find that really surprising. I still do people's favourite flower brand around the world by a huge margin is Google. And that's where they'll start their flower purchasing journey. Never thought of it that way, yeah. You know, we have favourite brands for all sorts of really functional stuff. We all buy fairy liquid rather than Lidl washing up liquid, which probably costs a third as much and is like made in the same factory. Yet when we want to express our emotions to people that we care most about in the world, we take our chances with Google and it just makes no sense. So I guess I felt that there was space for somebody to make a flower brand that people really loved and I hoped it could be us. And I started to think about what would make the flower buying experience better for both flower buyers and flower recipients. And I guess I landed on a few things that I felt were could be different and potentially better. It just felt really broken. For flower senders, you don't know whether the recipient's going to be at home. You have to check with them. That kind of ruins the surprise. If they're not going to be home, then you have to make alternative arrangements. So you just give your recipient a ton of admin when actually you're trying to please them. And then for the recipient, if um, the sender doesn't do that, then they get even more admin because likely they aren't at home. They have to go and collect the flowers from a sorting office. The flowers are, may well be past their best. You have to pretend that you like them. You have to avoid inviting the person who sent them to you around to your house while they're there in case they see that they're not in good condition or that they've died and you've had to throw them away. You have to avoid sending a picture or like <laughs> style the picture to make the flowers look better than they actually do. There are just so many broken bits to it in both directions. And I had a friend from university who was running Grays, which was a business for sending snacks through the letterbox. Um, another one. Yes, no, very well. I just thought this was such a cool, innovative product. And it made me start to think about the letterbox as a potential way of sending flowers as well to make that experience better. And I guess that was a, a sort of unique idea and definitely sort of our initial hook that we're known for now. Obviously, many other companies do letterbox flowers. I don't think... Um, anybody at scale focuses on it in the way that we do. But I think that it's become a legitimized mainstream concept in a way that it obviously wasn't back then. You started your business really looking at a problem that people were having. You were finding a solution to that problem. Tell me what advice you would have to those listening about that. So they see that gap in the market, they see an issue that they're having every single day, and they think, right, if no one else is solving it, I'm going to solve it. Starting from a genuine customer problem is so important. I think a lot of people I know um, approach me about business ideas that they want to start. And a lot of the time they're starting from, I think this would be a good idea or I think this would be a good way of making money. And I think if you start from that and you haven't really proved that customers want it or, you know, what's a customer problem and how is your solution materially better than other solutions out there to that problem, then you may well dedicate years of your precious life to solving a problem that isn't actually a problem for people. Now, 
you can get lucky or you can be a genuine visionary and you you know you can figure out that people want like a, a car rather than a better horse or whatever the sort of Ford analogy was but then that sort of feels like more of a moonshot and if you don't have that good fortune or vision then starting with a real customer problem is really important and if it's something that is a problem that you understand and care about personally then all the better because I think you can then really empathize with your customers whereas if you're just trying to dispassionately identify a business opportunity, then that can be more difficult. I get asked, Aaron, this question all the time. I don't know what my passion is, so I don't know how to start a business. But what you're also saying is, well, if you don't know that, do you have an issue that you're facing every day in an industry you love or something like that? You know, what is that problem that you can solve? I want to talk to you about the start of Bloom and Wild because you basically revitalized an industry. You know, that's what we're talking about. I couldn't believe what you're saying is that Google was the number one place to buy flowers. Tell me about the early days days of setting it up? Because I heard you spent many days walking around London measuring letterboxes. I did. I think so when we, um, my co-founder Ben and I landed on this letterbox idea, the execution of it suddenly became really important. And so we needed to basically have a box that was as big as possible to fit as many flowers in as possible to make a generous bouquet without the flowers sort of being squashed or without there being too many flowers that were unusable, but also that was um, small enough to fit through the vast majority of, if not all, letterboxes. And so I took this problem very seriously and I, I wanted to measure enough letterboxes to get to a high degree of confidence that we knew what shape of box to have. And so I went around doing that myself with a ruler and a notebook <laughs> and, um, you know, measured uh, literally thousands of boxes and got uh, interrupted by people opening the door to their house and asking what I was doing with a ruler and notebook in front of their house. And, <laughs> you know, luckily I never got stopped on like the first recordings. If I, if I showed them a list of like 50 measurements I'd made, they sort of believed me that I was um, not up to no good. Genuinely measuring letterboxes. Exactly, not sort of like plotting a burglary or anything like that. But um, I share that example and there are many other examples, but I think you need um, that level of dedication if you are going to create a product that's genuinely better than other people. And it's a moment that resonates with people, I think partly because it's a funny story, but partly because... Um, it shows the level of care that I put into mm. trying to make sure that the product was as good as possible in order to get the best possible sort of validation and feedback, um, which is obviously a, that huge motivator to me. And what about those first flowers, though? How did you tackle that? Because I can only imagine, was this kitchen table or a shed or something where you get all these flowers? Or did you, from day one, think, actually, we need to do this at scale? Aaron, how did you literally post those first boxes with flowers in them? And they weren't all dead? Or were they all dead when they got to the recipient? They were. I'll come back to that. But <laughs> um, we started in February. So um, we rented um, space uh, by the hour from a wedding florist in New Covent Garden Flower Market in Battersea. And so we would buy flowers from traders um, in the New Covent Garden Flower Market. We I think they thought we were ridiculous. We had no idea what we were talking about. We didn't know what the names of you know any of the flowers beyond basically roses and lilies were. Uh, we started making a database, actually, um, as uh, kind of like analytically minded people of um, flowers, whether they'd fit in our box, whether they'd survive in transit, whether we needed to um, hydrate them in a particular way, whether they needed any sort of form of additional protection, how long they'd last for, stuff like that. All of these florists, like looking over our shoulders at what we were doing, thought we were crazy, but it was... Um, 
sort of IP that nobody else really had that was really important for for the the customer proposition mm. that we developed. And then we bought boxes um, initially from Ryman's um, and then we <laughs> no. found, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they weren't quite the right shape for the postal system. So then we found a box manufacturer in Southeast London. He used to charge us 30 pounds a box for a prototype. Um, I'll oh. come back to that in a minute. Um, you know, we bought flowers <laughs> from the market, put them in prototype boxes, took them to the post office. And posted them. Uh, I remember the first time I took six boxes to the post office. Um, it was on Vauxhall Bridge Road, which was the closest one to Nine Elms. Uh, you know, I stood in the queue, uh, got to the front, and the chap that was working in the post office told me that the box was too big. I said, okay, and I just um, went to a different post office, actually. Um, I took the tube because I was going to pitch an investor. So I, I thought I'd drop the boxes off at a post office near the investor's office. Um, and then on the tube, I bumped into a guy that I'd worked with um, in my first job who'd gone on to start another business, um, Funding Circle. By now, he was like mega successful and had this fancy office and loads of people. I know him as well, yes. yes. And he asked me what I was doing. I told him I was starting a business. I was carrying six boxes of flowers on the tube to a post office. Um, I think he sort of wondered how scalable my plans were, um, and rightly so at that point. But that was the first attempt at posting flowers. And then um, they were indeed all dead because we hadn't thought to put holes in the boxes to ventilate the flowers in transit. And when you don't give flowers um, aeration or some types of flowers, basically, they kind of sweat in an unaerated uh, environment and they develop a form of mold called botrytis which manifests itself as uh, brown spots on on um, your beautiful flowers yeah <laughs> we weren't charging people at this point we were sending these for free in response for feedback so i called people up to get their feedback and the feedback was uh, universal about the brown spots and actually um we'd been so annoyed about having to pay 30 pounds per box to this guy um we asked him if he could reduce the price. And he said to us that if we bought a thousand boxes, he'd charge us £2.70 per box each. So we spent £2,700 buying boxes. And then these uh, six boxes that we sent out, the ones that I carried on the tube, um, were the first six boxes out of these thousand boxes that we bought to try and reduce the cost per box. And then it turned out that all of the flowers arrived with botrytis because um, we hadn't put holes in the boxes for ventilation. And as a result of that, we realized that we couldn't use the boxes. And so we had to basically throw away the other 994 boxes we'd bought. And it's probably the single biggest mistake that I've made was starting the company is um, sort of trying to run before we could walk there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were frustrated about the boxes costing £30 per sample. And so we wanted to get them cheaper and we jumped too far, too far. NatWest's support for small businesses goes way beyond simply finance and day-to-day banking. Through their online business hub, you can find all kinds of useful information on how to kickstart and grow your business, from strategy and planning to sales and marketing. And it's all free. Head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker, where you'll also be able to view my exclusive video sharing top tips for small businesses and sign up for free email business updates. Now, as you know, every week we run a competition with NatWest who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. About seven years ago, my gut decided to say no to all the foods drinks and even exercise that I used to enjoy. 
and then my energy levels and mood proceeded to drop off a cliff. I can totally sympathise with men and women who are going through something similar, bouncing from specialist to specialist without making much headway. You're not alone. So I'm Lucy, and I'm the founder of The Gut Feeling. I created the solution that I wish I had. We're all about inspiring people about gut health so that they find ways to be happy and healthy. And one of the ways we do this is our monthly gut health subscription box, which includes anything from kimchi to flax seeds. We're all about foods, drinks and wellness items which are genuinely good for your gut. You can find us at thegutfeeling.co.uk and also on Instagram and Facebook if you search for at thegutfeelinguk. If you'd like 20% off your first box, please use the following code in caps, GOTGUTS20. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. what it was like that first round of investment was it easy to convince people that letterbox flowers was a viable idea it was hard to convince people and it actually remains hard to convince people now um, at times so different things are hard to convince different people of so the letterbox bit specifically wasn't that hard to convince investors of. I think it was hard to convince consumers of people in flowers. It was less about will the letterbox work and more about you know, will you be able to build a really large scale differentiated business? Will you be able to build genuinely differentiated technology um, and supply chain versus other flower companies out there? And you know what will make you the winner? And I think the other thing that happens, I was guilty of this myself in the early days as well, is um, a lot of investors as a male and this was a business started um, by two men um, mm-hmm. but actually 80% of our customers are, are female and uh, well over 90% of our recipients are female and in a way um, I think therefore you know you often have a, a conversation that takes place entirely between men but you know the us as the pitchers and then um, the investors um, about a product that women are sending to other women and some of the product and use case comprehension is not that strong and I think Feedback in particular we used to get is, well, the investor um, buy flowers mainly for Valentine's Day for, um, you know, my wife or um, or girlfriend. And so I want to give her a big bunch of flowers of red roses and I want her to receive them from me. And that is true. The Valentine's Day is obviously a big day in the, in the flower um, industry and that's kind of how the product works. But that wasn't the product that we were trying to sell. And I think um, mm-hmm. it's easy on for consumer businesses, for people to project their kind of N of one experience of how they approach a product um, and assume that that's how the market approaches a product. And it's um, it's difficult to move away from that because it's, it's so natural to think about how you would do something. But actually, our target customer is... Uh, women trying to send thoughtful gifts to a wide range of other women as recipients to build a high repeat rate, um, affordable luxury, everyday gifting product. And it took us, um, we didn't have that vision right away. It took us some time to learn from our customers about why they were buying the product and what they were using it for, and then to develop the product accordingly. But 
I think sometimes, you know, when you are pitching a consumer business to an investor, um, it's quite hard to get beyond this um, notion of how they themselves would interact with a product um, like that. I mean, Aaron, I've had the same experience. When we first were pitching Not in the High Street, the comments coming back to us were, I've never bought a gift. My wife does the gift shopping. She likes to go to Marks and Spencer's and I don't think that she'll actually go online to buy craft. You just wanted to say, well, then how are you making the decision about this? Any chance you actually want to get her in the room, you probably need to get her making those decisions because it is a smart decision to make. And I know that you use some of your investment to build an app for the brand. And it's just fascinating that no one had done what you'd done before. You were blending these two worlds, technology and nature. And I've even heard you say that you were the only flower company that you know who employs data scientists. But this wasn't your natural area because you must face challenges still now. How do you just approach the fact that tech is difficult. I think this is one of the other things that we most got wrong. So at the beginning, we assumed naively that tech couldn't be that difficult (laughs) and also that it therefore couldn't be or didn't need to be that expensive. And I think we were very, very cost conscious, partly because um, of this experience with the boxes um, and partly just, I think, you know, both Ben and I are naturally um, just careful with money and try to be sensible with how we spend money personally and, yep. you know, for business and stuff like that. And um, it's sort of how we are. And it's one of the reasons why I think we saw eye to eye when we we started um, talking about starting the business together. And in many ways that served us really well. And it's meant that we've run our business in a disciplined way and, and things like that. But in some ways we were too careful with money and technology was definitely one of them. And we um, budgeted £3,000 to build the website in our... Um, <laughs> I love these stories. <laughs> It's not enough money to build a website. And um, yeah, we're still building our website. We've been running the business for eight years. and um, <laughs> Never stops. Uh, yeah, and we've, um, we've obviously outspent that budget. Um, you know, and I remember getting quotes from people who wanted to charge us £5,000 to build a website. And I was just thinking it was way too expensive and not unnecessary to spend that extra £2,000. And actually, you know, the whole sort of um, way we were thinking about it wasn't right. And mm-hmm. I think it probably cost us a couple of years of early progress that we were um, quite as thrifty as we were because, you know, in a way you get what you pay for. And we tried to find people who could build um, what we needed inexpensively, but they didn't end up building what we needed. And Mm -hmm. Um, And we needed to start again several times. And it's very difficult to ask somebody to inherit somebody else's code. And so then they want to start from scratch and rightly so, because the code is difficult to follow. And we eventually, when we raised um, our second round of seed funding from angel investors, we brought on board a tech advisor. He's actually, um, he's a wonderful person. Um, He later became a board member. Um, His name's Jackson Hull. So I'll give him a shout out here. He's now the CTO (laughs) at a business called Oak North, um, which is uh, a hugely successful business. And he's been on our board for five years now. But before he joined our board, um, he helped us out. And at the time, his very clear advice was to start again. (laughs) You know, we uh, gave up on our Magento platform that we've been trying to build on for over a year. We hired our first two developers in-house and we... um, we started building a website from scratch and then we added an app to that and um, and we went from there. And, you know, in a way it was galling to lose a year of progress. But on the other hand, um, you know, the platform that we started building on a year and a bit into the business, so in mid-2014, is still the platform that we run today. And there are things that we'll do, that we have done and will do to make that platform more scalable. But I don't think we'll start again from scratch. 
I think what's so impressive is how you've used your technology because you are a brand that I feel has really developed very thoughtful, mindful marketing, a very human way. And I remember a couple of years ago, you did something around Mother's Day. Might you tell me a little bit about what you did and the impact it had on your customers? Mother's Day is obviously a really important time to us um, from a, a trading perspective in the flower business. And two years ago, we started getting some emails from people saying, you know, love Bloom and Wild, um, but Mother's Day is a really sensitive time for me. So I wish you wouldn't send me emails about it. So we said, would you like us to take you off our email database and then put you on a list and then we'll add you back on after Mother's Day? And customers were like, wow, that would be amazing. That's really good of you. What a great idea. So we literally had like, um, this is before GDPR, so we had a Google Sheet. Obviously, wouldn't be able to do it like this anymore. <laughs> uh, people's email addresses, we um, put them on the sheet and then we unsubscribed them and then we resubscribed them to our database after Mother's Day. For many reasons, including the advent of GDPR, we realized the sentiment was right, but that the execution was... Uh, non-scalable. And non-scalable, <laughs> precisely. You've heard that phrase uh, many times as well. So... We thought we would try to automate this in 2019 and we built an opt-out thing. And at the start of, uh, of March of Mother's Day trading season, we sent an email to all of our customers saying, would you like to opt out of Mother's Day related communications? Um, if so, like click this link and we'll do it for you. And um, mm -hmm. we'll continue to email you, but we won't include any emails about Mother's Day. And uh, we thought, you know, we'd get like 100 or 200 responses and we got 17,000 people opting to do this. So this was actually a much bigger hidden problem than we'd realized. Wow. And among the 17,000 people, we got, you know, just organically, there's no PR effort here, influencers, journalists, all sorts of people for whom, you know, Mother's Day was a really difficult occasion um, because of their personal lives. And so there was a ton of organic uh, sort of influencer and press coverage about it. And it really snowballed. And it became something that we were just super proud of at Bloom and Well, because it was a genuinely customer first decision. Mm -hmm. Customer first is one mm -hmm. of our values, along with care and others. Um, and actually, it was a, a real sort of win-win. It was better for customers because, you know, we were not emailing them about a sensitive occasion. And actually, they, it was better for us because obviously there was this huge sort of coverage benefit. But it also increased these customers' loyalty with us because they would still shop with us during March, but not for Mother's Day. They became more positively disposed towards us because we weren't emailing them mm. both during that March period mm. and afterwards. And actually, customers that were happy to um, receive our Mother's Day comms, appreciated that we'd given them the option not to, even though they didn't go with it. Mm. Then we saw some other brands starting to do it, which we welcomed. This wasn't a sort of like, oh, you shouldn't copy us. It's our idea. This was, you know, it's good that mm -hmm. people are doing this. And then in 2020, we thought, how can we take it to the next level and make this a genuinely brilliant experience? So we did two things in addition to what we've done in 2019. Firstly, we extended from this just covering email to this being uh, what we call a full stack solution. So if you opted out, you would not see Mother's Day products. Uh, Mother's Day wouldn't appear on the navigation on our website. Wow. There'd be no Mother's Day greeting cards and the greeting card selector. You wouldn't see Mother's Day Facebook ads, push notifications, any of it. Then the second thing we did was to create the thoughtful marketing movement because we thought mm. actually um, rather than sort of viewing other people doing this as competitors, we should try and encourage everybody that's in the gifting related industry to do this. And this can be flower companies, it can be you know, chocolates, biscuits, restaurants, um, vouchers, all sorts of, uh, of stuff that people buy for gifts and um, for sensitive occasions. And it shouldn't just be Mother's Day, it could be Father's Day, Valentine's Day, Christmas, all sorts of things as well. And um 
We've now got 150 other brands signed up to this, mainly brands that trade with consumers, but also agencies and other industry partners. Um, we have had this talked about in Parliament. Um, so an MP took it up. Um, we've talked about it in the press on lots of occasions. We um, sponsored a new category of awards with the DMA um, around this. And um, it feels like we've been able to achieve genuine change um, beyond just our relationship with our customers and that now opt out um, around marketing for sensitive occasions, um, you know, which is not a life and death matter, like, you know, a COVID vaccine or something like that. But it's a really important thing to a lot of people and a lot more people than people probably realize has become the norm. And if we get credited with it or not, you know, ideally, you know, I think we should. And I think a lot of people know that we started it. But if other people don't want to acknowledge us or, you know, want to claim they started it, then so be it. And the important thing is that it's happening. And I'm super proud of having achieved that. You should be. You should be. Now tell me, because you recently introduced something called Care Wildly as well which is a way of connecting people with the emotions behind why we send flowers. And it's absolutely a beautiful concept and I think captures the essence of real relationships and the ups and downs of life. You know that 99% of what we don't see on Instagram, basically, you know, and the campaign is so ahead of its curve, you know, connecting customers on an emotional level. And what I'm interested in is it focuses its attention on the sender of the flowers rather than the recipient, which is quite a bold move, isn't it? And it's incredibly interesting because it's just about emotions and what sits behind this. And especially in this tough year, tell me about this, because again, this seems like another sort of, I don't know, another mission in what some could just see as a flower company. Yeah. So I'll trace it back to our values. So um, about five years ago, we, um, as a team, we we're about 20 people on the team at the time, we co-created our values and we have five values, um, care, pride, customers first, delight and innovation. I always list care first. It's the one that um, that's most meaningful to me. It's the one that I, you know, these aren't my values. These are our team's values. But in, the, in that co-creation session, it was the one I really pushed for personally. And I did it because it's ultimately why I started the company. We, I mm-hmm. think we ultimately care more than others in our industry because we're obsessed with feedback and validation and um, with fixing stuff when it goes wrong. And we look for that when we hire people and, and we build business processes around that. Um, you know, we do things like um, batch resending uh, flowers that aren't going to make it in time for sensitive occasions before the customer even realizes that they're not going to arrive. So we send mm. them an email saying, we checked the sys- the Royal Mail system and this was delayed, you know, this can happen. We've automatically sent out a new one by courier so that something will be there for Mother's Day or Valentine's or whatever. And nobody else that I know of does this. And I think um, it costs us money to do it often, like that example. But I think it's um, we're true to our mission and I think uh, we're rewarded for it many times over by our customers. And so that's our ethos for how we do business. I think because of that, what we started to realize is that we'd also created a new different way of sending flowers, not only that, you know, the flowers fit through the letterbox, but also that in every aspect of how we've designed the business, we've done that um, because we're forming this, uh, what I'd call a care contract between us and our customers. And we um, show this care for our customers and for the mission that they're trying to fulfill, which is 
by and large, an emotionally important mission for people. People send flowers to express some sort of underlying emotion, um, Mm. gratitude or sympathy or support or love, whatever it is. And um, they need to trust that the person or organization that they will um, entrust that mission with is going to care about it as much as they do. And I think if they do, then um, they will feel good about flowers being the way that they express that emotion. And that that was really what we we sort of unpicked. And as a result, we thought if we can communicate what we know that flowers mean for our customers when they're sending them, that would be a very different sort of campaign. We thought that if we could get under the skin of why people are, are really sending flowers and, and connect on that level with customers and then build a campaign around that and understanding sort of how people express care to each other in the world and put ourselves at the heart of that narrative because that's ultimately our business's purpose. That was the right way to communicate to the world. God, I'm loving this interview, Aaron. Like really loving it. Tell me, how do you start putting that meaningful and thoughtfulness straight front and centre? Because sometimes that costs money, doesn't it, to do that? It feels potentially like maybe what's on the last of your to-do list rather than at the starting block. Yeah, it goes back to something I was saying earlier about not economising on the wrong things. And um, Mm -hmm. if you set out to start a business and you say, um, having a great product is going to be expensive, so I'm going to make an okay product, then it's very unlikely that you're going to build a successful business because there's probably lots of other people with an okay product. But on some dimension, either price and therefore your inherent cost advantage that means that you can... um, give people that price point or some other form of differentiation, your product needs to be better than other people's, otherwise nobody's going to choose it. Mm -hmm. And so economizing on how good your product is doesn't make sense. You need to create something that's differentiated and better. And um, I think that's the case in many businesses. I think it's the case in the flower business more than in most others because of the emotional role that we're playing for our customers. If we were making microphones or headsets, like you need to have a good quality product that works well, but um, it doesn't have that same emotional connection as flowers does. Great answer. And tell me also, you have now gone into really thinking about the planet as well. And again, this is another thing that we're seeing, isn't it? The rise of thoughtful marketing. And we're seeing the rise of the triple bottom line, people, profit, planet. You've gone out there and you've said by 2021, 100% of your packaging will be recyclable, building a truly sustainable future for the brand. Is this tough to put in place? Is this one of the challenges that you've now brought to yourself over the next few years? Yes, of course it's tough, but it's the right thing to do. And um, I'm proud that we're doing it. Our letterbox packaging is already, everything in it is recyclable. And we're now also carbon neutral as of uh, earlier this year. um, And we'll be um, working to not just uh, stay carbon neutral, but also to actively reduce the amount of carbon that we're emitting in the first place on a per bouquet basis um, going forward and have made a number of other commitments. We also send zero waste to landfill, among other things. And I think this is really important, uh, just as good uh, like citizens of our planet because of um, the need for sustainability being greater than ever. I think it's important because customers really care about it and 
actually it's one of the dimensions on which customers are increasingly making decisions um, about where to buy from more than anywhere else. And rightly so, you know, like as as consumers, our family make the same decisions. We use reusable nappies for our children, you know, things like that and um, go out of our way to do things that are sometimes more inconvenient um, or more expensive, but are better for our planet. And we're privileged and you know fortunate that sometimes we can afford to spend a little bit more to do so and that we're very aware that not everybody can but i think um where people can it's right that they think about doing so and from a company's perspective you know you should offer that and then you should set a fair price for your product and it's a pricing decision how much cost you pass on to your consumer for doing business in the right way and how much you absorb yourself because you think you'll be rewarded with future growth mm-hmm. for doing mm-hmm. it right but for me that's a second order decision beyond um sort of doing things right and i think this year and how difficult it's been for the world has brought a lot of this doing business in the right way into sharper focus we've talked a bit about covid and our community interaction and contribution we've talked about sustainability um there are a lot of doing business in the right way initiatives at the moment in our business and in many others. But I think that's absolutely right. And I think the some of what's happened this year with COVID, also with Black Lives Matter, and also, you know, with uh, sort of increased focus on sustainability is bringing into focus a conversation that should have been happening for years and one that um, most business owners that I'm aware of are taking really seriously and rightly so. Year, together with our friends at Three, we're working to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer, and who knows what will happen. Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. As a girl, Darcy Bustle watched Fred Astaire and, inspired by his energy and passion, dreamt of the day she danced like him. Born in London, and despite having danced since she was very young, it wasn't until Darcy attended the Royal Ballet School, aged 13, that her serious ballet training began. Initially struggling with the complex routines and demanding schedule, she persevered and, at 17, was chosen for the lead in a school performance at the Royal Opera House. Her passionate performance and exceptional technique quickly saw her progress and she became the principal dancer of the Royal Ballet. At just 20 years old, she danced in her first classical role, Swan Lake. A unique talent, Darcy went on to dance in classical ballet roles all around the world and became one of the most renowned British dancers of her generation. In 2018, she was awarded a damehood. Darcy's grace, commitment and dedication are an inspiration to young dancers. She says... I wanted to inspire every little girl who wanted to be a dancer to fire their imaginations about the joys of being on stage. There's no doubt that her unique talent will allow many others who also dream big to follow their heart and to pursue their dreams in the same phenomenal spirit. 
Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. Do you ever look back, Aaron, and you think about the guys in that warehouse with your boxes? And now here we are talking about some of the unbelievable things that you're able to put in place in your business. The key decision maker, making these changes, you're the master of your destiny. Isn't it just extraordinary that you get to live this adventure? But you do feel slightly privileged that you get to be on this journey. You get to make these differences it's an immense privilege and um, I've had a huge degree of luck both with this business and with you know some of the privileges that I've had to have a like a comfortable upbringing and to be able to have a, a good education and not have to start work at a younger age and to be able to do that and so you know I'm aware that um, a lot of the luck um, comes from well before you start a business. And I think, you know, you can't eradicate your own past, but you can be aware of it and you play the hand that you've been dealt in the right way for those around you. And that's uh, increasingly important for me as I reflect on where our business is and is going. But yeah, it's crazy. You know, I I think back to New Covent Garden Flower Market and um, filling vials of uh, freezing water in February and then taking boxes (laughs) to the post office, you know, on the tube and and things like that. And I never thought that our business would get to where it is now and, you know, our scale in the UK and internationally and the, the feedback that we've got and the the outstanding team that we've been able to build. And, um, it's a genuine privilege to be here. What do you think the future of floristry might look like? You've made one of the most fundamental changes to the industry. I know you're going in international as well, but just tell me what do you see as the future? I think a few things will continue to happen. Online is here to stay and increasingly here to stay. And, uh, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic has accelerated this. Many people started shopping online for the first time this spring um, out of necessity rather than out of choice for the first time. And, um, you know, some people will uh, stop using the Internet the minute they can. Other people um, have realized that it can bring convenience or, um, or lower prices or things like that that are important to them. So I, I think that's here to stay and, and therefore floristry as an industry will continue to move online. And I think it will be um, part of how everybody in our space does business. I think um, florists out there with physical stores are on the high street have become online businesses over the pandemic. You know, yep. they've become click and collect businesses, um, whatever. And that's um, a, a reflection of reality at the moment. But I think it also will like determine the future landscapes. So I think online will become more competitive as, a, as the flip side of there'll be more online shopping. Um, and so you need to be even more differentiated to win in what's going to be, a, you know, an increasingly busy, competitive online environment. And so I think being able to sort of understand what makes customers tick and build a proposition around that um, in a customer first way will be even more important than ever. And that's certainly our focus. Another major trend, well, we've talked about sustainability and, you know, sort of really having clarity and mm-hmm. communication around um, the efforts you're making in that area. I think another thing is that we'll increasingly be in our own homes more and more people. Um, I think even when offices, uh, you know, one day uh, a norm again, I think people will have proven to their employers and employers will have got comfortable that people can work from home for at least some of the time. Um, and as a result, we'll be in our homes more. And so we'll spend less money on commuting and travel and like yes. sandwiches in central London and places like that and more money on um, making our homes uh, 
you know, as comfortable an environment to live and work in as possible. And we're thinking a lot about that trend and how we can um, sort of respond to that as a business. And I'm sure many others in our space are as well. Fascinating. I could talk to you all day. Tell me about your roller coaster because at the end of this interview, I ask my wonderful founders who have given me so much of their time for us to hear your story. If we use the analogy that running a business is often like being on an epic, crazy roller coaster, yours would be filled with flowers, maybe some boxes and things like that. And when you're at the lowest of the low of that roller coaster, tell me about what a really low moment has been for you. Yeah, so um, I've shared a couple of low moments um, uh, during this interview. (laughs) Um, You know, at the lowest, I felt that um, the lowest when I felt the business isn't going to be able to continue altogether. And, you know, we've maybe um, fortune will have conspired against us when we've um, worked so hard to create something that we genuinely think is brilliant. Obviously, there's like years of dedication to it, but there's also a genuine belief that we can do better. And if something happens that Um, prevents us from being able to do so. That's probably the biggest low. I think the second biggest one is when um, we feel like we've really, really let down customers through like a mistake or through, you know, relying on somebody else that we Mm -hmm. haven't been able to rely on. And it's it's just so difficult because um, ultimately, yeah, our purpose is to give customers that better experience than everybody else can give them. So if we end up giving them a worse experience because we do let them down because of some mistake or error of judgment in, you know, how we work with a third party, then um, it's very, very uncomfortable. And it feels like we're taking a step back when we're sort of obsessing about taking steps forward. Mm-hmm. That can be like operational, it can be technical, um, but mistakes happen and... Um, we try to avoid them happening, but um, it's impossible to eliminate them. And tell me when the wind's in your hair and you're at the top of the roller coaster, what's been that moment that you think, wow, I'm on this journey. This is unbelievable. I think in the early days, we used to celebrate numerical milestones and it would be, you know, we crossed whatever number of customers or orders or things like that. And now those are sort of, um, obviously the numbers get bigger and it's a tremendous privilege, but actually I think what is more meaningful is some of the things that are happening behind the scenes, you know, and, you know, we've talked about thoughtful marketing as a huge high, I think, um, releasing our sustainability report and just the pride that we have about doing business in the right way is another one. And it's a lot of the moments like that, that are, are the big things that, that sort of are that source of like real pride and, and joy right now. Similarly, I think, um, the other big area has been our team. Mm-hmm. We're nearly 150 people at Bloom and Weld now. And I think we've got an outstanding group of people that do genuinely care a huge amount about the experience that we give our customers and being able to build out that team and celebrate success with them. I can't wait to be able to safely get everybody together again yes. and um, thank them in person for the work that they've done and their dedication over this difficult period. Um, some of the moments that we've been able to share along the way and, and the, the sort of camaraderie that we've been able to build. And I'm sure you know this as a, a founder of a business with a great culture as well is um, super rewarding when you take a step back and you think that you're the person that had the responsibility of bringing these people together. We've used the word privilege quite a lot, but it really is. You're changing not only 
the customers' lives, but you're changing the lives of those that work with you. And it's so rewarding and one of the most brilliant things of building a team. As I said, I just have loved this interview. I've been longing for it. You've been a face on my wall, my podcast pot, I call it, for so long. And thank you. This is a crazy busy time for you, this Christmas period. It is, though, the moment of the podcast where I'm going to hand over to you and I'm going to ask you to read a letter that you've prepared for your younger but um, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really hope we stay in contact and I'll be a keen customer of yours forevermore. Thank you so much, Holly. It's been a great chat um, and uh, I look forward to being in touch again soon. Um, I'll uh, move on to my letter now. Dear Aaron, it's the early 1990s and you're reading this letter one morning before going to school. You're in year seven. I know what you want more than anything else. You want to fit in. You want to be loved. You want your family to love you, to accept you, and never to criticize you. You want the same from everyone at school. Being popular is so important to you. You work so hard at this. You go out of your way to please people and be kind to them, more than you perhaps should. Sometimes it's too much for people. You'll learn this when you're older. But it's also a remarkable trait. You put kindness above all else, and you genuinely care about people and want to do the best for them. Partly because you want them to do the same for you, but more because it's who you are. You're uncomfortable being indebted to people and over time you'll get to know people who value your warmth and generosity. You hate criticism, especially when it feels unfair, so you try desperately hard to avoid it at all costs. Don't let this get to you. Some of that feedback will surprise you with how valuable it is in the future. When you're older, you'll make this desire to please others your life's calling. The degree to which you care about those around you, both your closest family and friends, and then those you interact with just fleetingly, will be your North Star. It's worth the time and effort you put into building these relationships in both your personal life and later your work life. Never underestimate it. The world of work may feel a long way away. For now, apply your dedication to try and get good marks and praise from your teachers and validation from your classmates. This will become a stronger urge as you get older, and if you listen to it and act on it to earn the praise and trust of others, you'll be able to achieve more than you ever thought possible. With love, your future self. <laughs> it's so beautiful and wonderful, uh, you know, and it's the fact that you've been able to reflect on really that golden thread that started this entire journey, your entrepreneurial journey, your seven-year-old self, this boy that wanted to please. And now you have a job, which is about pleasing people. And um, I always think about looking back to our childhood and thinking, gosh, the small Aaron, he was always destined to do something like this, like your grandfather and father. And it's just wonderful. Thank you so much for writing that. And thank you, Aaron, again for your time today. Thank you, Holly. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder. Pack full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 